What a wonderful and blessed message we've been blessed to hear tonight about putting on the whole armor of God. Certainly, that is so important for God's people. And uh, it's not something to look at or just to talk about. It's something to really do to put this armor because we have a real enemy. Uh, I'd like to begin tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I will not have you to be ignorant how our fathers were under the cloud and went through the sea and were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did eat of that spiritual meat and drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ. But with many of them, God was displeased because they lusted after things they shouldn't have lusted after. They were guilty of idolatry. They were guilty of temptation. They were guilty of fornication. And they were guilty of murmuring. Five things Paul lists here that the Israelites were guilty of after they experienced this great deliverance out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. As a result, many of them fell. And he said, these things have happened for in samples and written for our admonition. Therefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. An ensample is an example, but it's an example of something uh, that has a lot of weight to it. It's, it's something that's very strong in terms of being illustrated. But I want to look at the first part of that. He says, moreover, brother, I would not have you to be ignorant how our fathers passed under the cloud and through the sea. This is something Paul thought it was really important for them to be educated on to be instructed in, to, have, to be enlightened. In fact, six times in Paul's writings, he wrote seven churches, and he wrote nine letters to them. And six different times, he begins a subject, a theme, a thought, with the expression, I'll not have you to be ignorant. Now, Will Rogers said we're all ignorant, just on different subjects. <laughs> so here are six different subjects that Paul felt like the Lord's people needed to be instructed in and have some knowledge of. One of them, of course, is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. We shall mother, brother, and I declare unto you uh, concerning that you saw or not, even those others which have no hope. And he goes on to teach us here that those who are asleep in Christ shall rise first at the second coming of Christ. And then Christ himself shall descend from heaven, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and they which are asleep in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught together to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be in the Lord. I sure want God's people to be instructed in that. But there's several others, and you can go look them up for yourself. But he says, notice the word all versus the word many. He says, our fathers all passed under the cloud and through the sea. There was none left behind. He said, we're all baptized unto Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. There was not one left behind. There was not one that perished. There was not one that died. When God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt, they came out totally and completely. Not one was left behind. Now, to me, that's a very beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he did. Moses delivered a nation, but Jesus Christ delivered a people out of every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And not one of them shall perish. Not one of them shall be left behind. Not one of them shall die separated from Christ. But then the language shifts from all to many. 
But many of those that he delivered, he was not well pleased with them. But I don't really want to talk about them. <laughs> I want to look at the first part of that. He said, they did all eat of that same spiritual meat and did all drink of that same spiritual drink of that spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ. Now we notice here he speaks about this meat as being spiritual meat and this rock or this water as being spiritual water or spiritual rock. And I believe he says that because in John chapter 4, the Lord taught the Samaritan woman this lesson and us this lesson that God is a spirit and seeketh such to worship him. As God is a spirit, all things that come down from him are free gifts that come from God. Now I realize the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself a body of human flesh as he lived here upon the face of this earth. But Jesus said, God is a spirit and seeketh such to worship him in spirit and in truth. Therefore, the blessing of this meat and this drink that God gave is referred to as spiritual. Now I believe he's talking about the manna that came down from high as far as that spiritual meat is concerned. Come over here after they come out of the, uh, out of you know uh, Egypt and across the Red Sea, and they're getting ready to march toward the land of Canaan. God delivered them out that He might deliver them in. But we know that they exemplified unbelief by sending the twelve spies into the land of Canaan, and those twelve spies spent forty days over there, and they brought back ten of them an evil report. As a result of that evil report, the Lord put a judgment upon them of one year for every day they were in the land of Canaan, spying out the land, which is 40 days, that's 40 years. So they're going to have to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Now, what are they going to eat for 40 years in the wilderness? What are they going to drink for 40 years in the wilderness? The wilderness is not a place where there's an apple supply of food or water. So how are they going to be taken care of? Well, it's going to require a miracle of God. It's going to require the miraculous God performing a miraculous work over you know, a long period of time in order for that to happen, in order for that to take place. So there's a million plus people we're talking about here that came out of Egypt, that came across the Red Sea. Now who's going to feed those one million plus people? Where are they going to get the food and where are they going to get something to drink for that length of time? Now, we find that the Lord rained down something. The Bible uses that expression, it rained down. He rained down a thing called manna, which was bread from heaven. Now, you can read Psalm 78, you can read Psalms 103, Psalms 105, and in those three Psalms, you have certain passages that refer to the experiences that I'm talking about here tonight. We're reading Psalm 78, example, verse 19, and Israel asked this question. It said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Now, we're talking about the wilderness, and we're talking about a table being furnished, that is, something to eat, something to drink. Tonight we had a great blessing of the wonderful food here tonight that the brethren prepared that God provided, by the way. We had plenty to eat, and we had plenty to drink. We need something to eat, we need something to drink, be able to live, right? So the Israelites are going to have something, have to have something to eat and something to drink, so God's going to give them exactly what they stand in need of. Amen. God's going to give them something called manna, something that had never come down from heaven before. Something they had never seen before. Something they had never experienced before. And it took place over a period of 40 years and has not happened since. Now the manna we're talking about here, I believe is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus gave this lesson in John chapter 6. When he says, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness, and they all died. 
He says, but Jesus is that true bread. I'm that true bread that came down from heaven that you might have life. There's the contrast here. But God gave them the manna, and it came in the morning time. Now, on a one-time occasion, because they requested this, we find where God gave them their request. Psalms 106 says this, but he gave them leanness of soul. They wanted flesh to eat. God gave them flesh. He rained down flesh upon them in terms of quails that came in the evening time. But for 40 years, God gave them something that fell in the morning time, okay? And it was called manna. And this manna was prepared by God. God's a chef. <laughs> it's his recipe. It's prepared by God. The Lord Jesus Christ, his body was prepared when he came down from heaven to this earth. It was a body of flesh and blood like you and I, but God used a virgin woman for him to be conceived in the womb of, and she was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Ghost, and therefore in his humanity we have perfection, we have sinlessness, you see. And so his body was prepared. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 says so. A body thou hast prepared for me. It was the gift of God. This manna was the gift of God. Israel didn't ask for it. Israel didn't pay for it. Israel didn't merit it. Israel didn't even deserve it. <laughs> but God gave it to him out of his mercy. The Lord Jesus Christ, the gift of God. 1 Corinthians 9, 15, I believe he's the one that's under consideration with Paul says, but thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Doesn't mean we can't speak about it. It just means <laughs> that we always come up short. We, we never really have all the right words. We never can really uh, describe God as well as we'd like to. When I tell you God is great, he's greater than that. When I tell you God is good, he's goodlier than that. And that is a biblical word, by the way. I didn't just make it up. Once in a while, I'll make a word up. But I didn't make that one up, okay? Uh, that's a biblical word. He's just goodlier than I can preach about him being good. He's greater than anything I could tell you tonight. I don't have the vocabulary, the ability to be able to really describe him like I would really like to. Now, he's just simply greater than that. So as that manna was the gift of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the great gift. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. That manna came down from heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ numerous times made reference to where he came from. Now, I'd like to think tonight I know where I came from. I'd like to think I know where I'm at. And I'd like to think I know where I'm going. Now, sometimes that might be in question, but I'm pretty confident tonight. I try to always know where I'm at, where I came from, and where I'm going. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, I saw on the TV the other day, they were on uh, Jeopardy. They had a question about who our nearest relative was in a chimpanzee. Well, maybe theirs, but not mine. <laughs> Now, you, you claim uh, monkeys if you want to in your ancestry, but I believe I came from Adam, and I came from the dust of the earth. I'll take the dust of the earth any day rather than a monkey. I don't have any problem with that. I know I came from dust. I know I'm going to go back to dust. I know where I came from. I know where I'm at. And if I'm not deceived, I know where I'm going to be one day, and I'm looking forward to that. It came down from heaven. Now, Jesus said in John 6 and 37, For I came down from heaven. He knew where he came from. He came from a real place called heaven. If there's no real literal heaven, then where did Jesus come from? He didn't just make it up. I came down from heaven. Now, I came down not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he has given me, I shall lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. Look at all the doctrine packed into those three verses there. 
And one do we like to quote it so often. <laughs> I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, my will, the Father's will, the one the same. That's why I came, he says. All the Father gives me shall come to me, and I shall not lose anything but race up again at the last day. There's salvation, there's election, there's preservation, all packed in to those words of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this manna, it, it fell at nighttime, and when the Lord Jesus Christ came to this world, he came during the night season, you might say, of Israel's history. The Israelites were not really ready. They were not really prepared. They were walking in darkness to a great extent when Christ came into this world. When that manna came down from heaven, it fell upon dew. It didn't fall upon the soil. It didn't fall upon the dirt. It was separated. The dew separated the manna from the dirt. So the manna didn't become so, uh, or, or, or contaminated or ruined, you see, or dirty or whatever. It was protected. Now, in Hebrews 7, 24, it says the Lord Jesus Christ is holy, undefiled, separate from sinners. Now, how was he separate from sinners? He lived among sinners. He touched sinners. He talked to sinners. He ate with sinners. <laughs> he ministered to sinners, etc. But yet, there's some way he was separate from sinners. He was not a sinner himself. A non-sinner lived in the midst of a world of sinners, the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was a separation, you might say. Just like that dew separated the manna from the soil and from the dirt. Now, when they first saw that manna, they'd never seen it before. They didn't know what in the world it was. It was mystical to them. How many times when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do you read where Jesus said something or Jesus did something, and it ends like this, and they were amazed at what they just saw. Or they were astonished at what they just heard. That's how the Sermon on the Mount ends. They were astonished at his doctrine. He hath done all things well. What manner of man is this? Even the sea and the winds obey his voice. That's just a sample of the comments, sample of the remarks that came to the lips of people after they heard and seen the things that the Lord Jesus Christ did. This manna, they'd never seen it before, but it came down from heaven, prepared of God. It was mystical in that sense. It fell upon the dew. And we find several characteristics about this manna that I think points us to the Savior. First of all, it was totally round. And when something's totally round, like a wedding band, I can't find any place where it starts and any place where it ends. When I think about God, I cannot find anywhere he starts and nowhere where he ends. Psalms 90 verse 1. Uh, he says, the Lord has been our refuge in all generations, our hiding place in all generations. Before the mountains were ever formed and God formed the earth, he says, thou art from everlasting to everlasting. And that word everlasting means vanishing point. It means you look this way and you look and you see as far as you can see, but you never see an end. And you look this way, the same thing. You look just as far as you can all the way, but you never see an end. He's from vanishing point to vanishing point. 1 Timothy 1.17 says, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, Jesus Christ is eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. I, I had a beginning. I'll have an end. Everything I've ever been associated with, associated with had a beginning and had an end, but that's not true with the Savior. It's not true in Jesus. God is eternal. This manna was round. It was small. Usually people don't think too highly of small things. They're more impressed with big things. Now I read in Isaiah 53, 1, where it says, Lord, who hath believed our report? 
to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed. He shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Without form, without comers, there's no beauty about him that we should desire him. It says, without form, without comeliness. That word comeliness means without majesty. There was nothing majestic about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was nothing out of the ordinary or special standpoint of his physical statue, so to speak. This manna was round. It was small. It was white in color. White, universally, so to speak, throughout the scriptures, denotes purity or sinlessness. And that's something that the Bible, the, you know, the Word of God is very careful to guard uh, concerning uh, the truth of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, in Hebrews chapter 4, he says, For we have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the fingers of our infirmities, but in all points was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in all points like you, like me, yet without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. And you come over to 1 Peter chapter 1, and uh, he says, For Jesus Christ, who was very foreordained before the foundation of the world, but before that he says, For as much as you know, you're not redeemed of corruptible things of silver and gold, but by the precious blood of the Lamb of God, without spot and without wrinkle, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ had no sin in him. The Lord Jesus Christ never sinned in thought, never sinned in words, never sinned in body, never sinned in action. He never sinned by, tra by transgressing. He never sinned by omission or commission. And by the way, it's a lot easier to sin than you think it is. When people say they hadn't sinned in the last week, last month, they sinned right then because they just lied. And the last time I checked, sin was a lie. Well, that was a sin. <laughs> uh, it's impossible to do something like that. All right? Uh, the very thoughts of foolishness is sin. I want to ask you tonight, have you had one foolish thought today? If you don't, you've got three and a half hours to get one in. And if you hadn't had one by now, I guarantee before you go to sleep tonight, you'll have one. But the truth of the matter is, you probably already had multiple foolish thoughts this particular day. That's just how easy it is to sin. All unrighteousness is sin. Look, your list could go on. But the Lord Jesus Christ never sinned. This manna we're talking about was small, it was round, it was white, it was sweet to the taste. Is anything sweeter to your taste than the Lord Jesus Christ is when he's, he's preached as the Bible describes our Savior, being a triumphant Savior, a victorious Savior, a Savior who come as a mighty king riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass into Jerusalem, but a mighty king nevertheless who is omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, who knows all things, sees all things, understands all things. He cares for you, has compassion upon you. Anything sweeter than that. We find John Newton writing to him, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. In a believer's ear, it's not sweet in the ears of a lot of people, but it's sweet, my friends, to a believer. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a what, believer's ear. I'm telling you, the sound of the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ as recorded in the Word of God, his, his actions, his words, uh, his works is sweet to the believer. This manna was sweet. And the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, you know, he starts off saying, I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. He said, He brought me to the banqueting house. His manner of me was love. I sat down, to his, uh, I sat down under the apple tree, <laughs> and his fruit was, what? was sweet to my taste. 
Psalms 103 and 105 says his word is sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. This manna we're talking about was sweet, very sweet. It was brown, it was white, pitching the Lord Jesus Christ's humanity, pitching the Lord Jesus Christ's purity, his sinless nature. Uh, we find it was very nourishing. It was exactly what they stood in need of in their wilderness journey. Now, the Lord gave instructions how to gather it. He says, you gather it each day, an omer per man. An omer per man. An omer is about two quarts. So there's a million plus people, so about 12 million quarts, okay, or 2 million quarts of manna fell every day. Two, about 2 million quarts of manna came down from heaven every single day for them to gather. And the Lord says, you gathered every morning. What happened then? Get it early in the morning. As the sun come up, it melted it. It was gone. They didn't get it. It was getting early in the morning. First thing I do, and everybody can figure out the best way for them, but the first thing I do in the morning is get a cup of coffee, sit down, and get my Bible reading in. I do my daily general Bible reading every morning with a cup of coffee, and uh, the first thing I do, and when I get that done, I just feel better. I feel like I've had a talk with God. I feel like I'm ready to start my day. I got that under my belt. I've got something to think about, something to meditate on, something to chew on for a while. And so it just makes my day go better. And by doing it the first thing, I don't have to worry about everything else crowding it out and not getting it done at all. That's how you get behind by not getting ahead. You ever think about that? <laughs> if you're always ahead, you can't get behind. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> you go out every morning and it came right to them. You talk about you know, God's grace involved. It came right to them. And you walked out, it was right there. They didn't have to go look for it. They had to go search for it. They didn't have to travel a mile for it. They walked out the tent door, and there it was. And when they gathered, what did they do? They had to bow down, didn't they? They, gathered, they had to bow down to the ground and gather it. Now, the Lord said you, get, you gather an omer per man. So each household, of course, was not the same. Some gathered much. And some gathered little. And those that gathered much had nothing lacking. And those that uh, gathered little uh, didn't come up short. It all came out just equal, you see. All right, they were together the first thing in the morning. And he says, don't gather. Or rather, what you gather, make sure you consume it all. Don't think you can save some for tomorrow. Because the Lord made sure that would not happen. When they tried to save some for the next day, it just ruined. It was gone. And then on the sixth day... God rained down twice as much. He says, you gather twice as much on day six for the seventh day is a Sabbath day and you're not to go out on the Sabbath day and gather anything. You know what some of them did? They went on the Sabbath day. They gathered just the same amount on day number six. They did on day number one through five. They thought, well, I'll just wait and get my other on day seven. They went out there. There was none there. There was none there. People had not changed a lick over the years, have they? They are still the same today as they were back then. People, well, anyway, uh, they, by not following God's word, you know, they realized that God meant exactly what he said. So he gave them, they ate of that spiritual meat that came down from heaven. God gave them this right here. It was the free gift of God, just like the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the bread of life. 
He has been uh, uh, the bread of life for me for a long, long time. I love feasting on the Lord Jesus Christ. On again, what he's taught me, what he's done for me, his acts, his words, etc. As recorded and left for us here in the word of God. It's sweet to my taste. Um, and he's, you know, uh, Peter says, unto him that believeth, he is precious. This should have been considered a very precious gift to the Israelites. But you know that 78th Psalm was a psalm of knots. It says, they remember not, they believe not, they kept not, because their heart was not right with God. And so they actually murmured against God. They got tired of this manner after a while. They, should have, they were unappreciative about it. That's what murmuring's all about. It's about being unappreciative and being unthankful for things that God has given to you. Now he said they drank, ate of that spiritual meat and they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now, they had to have something to drink so when they start off in the wilderness, it says he went three days without any water. Now, you go one day without water, it's... it's be kind of bad. You go two days without water, that'd be a lot more difficult. And you go three days without water, then you're getting uh, in really um, dire shape. I'll have to admit that. But you see, there's a difference in God testing and, te- and Satan tempting. Now, Brother Mark is preaching about how Satan tempts us. The great tempter. That's one of the words that describe one of his names in Scripture. The tempter. He tempts us to bring out the worst of us. But the Lord tests us Hopefully to bring out the best of us. Now the Lord knew they had to have water. The Lord knew uh, they couldn't survive without water. So they go three days and they finally come to a place called Mara. When they come to Mara, that word Mara means bitter. And they couldn't drink the water. So they asked the question, what shall we drink? The water is bitter. And so Moses interceded on their behalf and cried out to God, And God showed him a tree. He says, cut down the tree and put it in the water. And he did. The water was made sweet. Now, I don't know if there's more than one tree there or not. But I don't believe that Moses even noticed a tree being there. God just showed it to him. It's like in Genesis 21. There was a woman named Hagar. You know, and um, Sarah wanted to get rid of Hagar. And she persuades Abraham to to send her away. And Abraham... uh, sends her away on an on a ass there, and he gives her a bottle of water and some bread, uh, real generous of him, you know, and sends her out into the wilderness. And she reaches a certain point, and has got the little child in her arms, and she thinks he's going to die because there's no water. But God sent an angel to her and told her that he was going to make a great nation out of him. And the Bible says she opened her eyes, and there was a well of water. Where was that well of water before that? If it was there, she sure didn't see it. And I got a feeling she's looking around for some water. Things were getting bad. But all of a sudden, miraculously, there's a well of water there for Hagar. When Abraham took his son Isaac on top of the mountain in Genesis chapter 22, the Lord told him to take his son, his only son Isaac, on top of the mountain and offer him on the mountain that I will show thee. And Abraham did that. And Abraham was following the commands of God out to the T, and he raised his hand back with a knife to slay his son, and the angel spoke and said, Abraham, Abraham, stay thy hand. And the Bible says Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. wonder where that ram had been all along. There it was. God provided. Just like he had told Isaac, 
And now he said, Father, Father. He said, here am I. He says, here's the wood. Where's the fire? Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God shall provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And he did. But I'm glad I can see more in that verse than just that ram caught in the thicket. I'm glad I can see another lamb he was talking about that will come hundreds and hundreds of years down the road that John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ was the lamb that God provided. He was the lamb, and he was the lamb that God provided to take away the sins of God's children. Remember Elisha's servant? When uh, he was greatly fearing because he saw the chariots and horses of the enemy, his army. And Elisha prayed for him. And the Bible says God opened his eyes. And he saw another army. And this was God's army. And God's army was also horses and chariots. But they were horses and chariots of fire. And they surrounded Elisha and protected Elisha. They were between Elisha and the Syrian army. They had to get to Elisha. They had to go through God's army. And they were not going to be able to do that. Their eyes were opened. Here's a tree. He points out the tree. Cut the tree down. Cast in the waters. The water becomes sweet. Problem solved at this point. Thirty-some times in the Bible we find where Israel murmured. They were a murmuring people. They specialized in it. They were experts in it. They were gifted at it. And I think every true gospel church has got to have a brother complainer and a sister murmur in it. It was just not a church. All right? <laughs> not that I want more than that. I don't even want that. But that's always been my experience. There's going to be a brother complainer and a sister murmur somewhere in the congregation. So they specialized in it and always displeased God. But from there, God leads them to a place called Elam, the last part of Exodus 15. Went to Elam, what do they find? They find an oasis. They find 12 wells and 70 palm trees. Now, right out there in the wilderness, where'd they come from? Where'd they come from? Twelve wells of water and seventy palm trees, and there's twelve tribes. Each tribe has its own personal well of water. And there were seventy elders among the Israelites, seventy elders and seventy palm trees. Come to the New Testament day, you got twelve apostles, and you got seventy that went out in pairs, two by two. Here the Lord provides it for them in a very miraculous way. And they have a lot of R&R &R right there on that particular occasion when they found this oasis there at Elam of the 12 palm trees and the, uh, excuse me, the 12 wells of water and the 70 palm trees. But we come just one chapter later, or chapter 17, two chapters later. And once again, there's no water. <laughs> once again, they murmur. You know what Israel remembered and forgot in their experiences? They remembered the food they had in Egypt, but they forgot God's miracles and wonders. Now, how could you do that? How in the world could you forget those ten miracles, those ten plagues that God uh, sent forth upon the Egyptians? How could you forget the Red Sea parting in two great walls of water and going through dry shot to the other side and not leave anybody behind? How could you forget that? But they did. Oh, they remembered the leeks, they remembered the onions, they remembered the melons, they remembered all that kind of stuff, but they forgot all about their heavy burdens and the great miraculous work of God in bringing them out of there. Now, we're all inclined to do stuff like that, right? So here they are murmuring again, and Moses intercedes on behalf of the Israelites to God, and uh, the Lord tells him to do something. He says, here's a rock right here, Moses. He says, you stand upon this rock, 
He said, well, I'll stand upon this rock, brother, and I want you to take the rod that you used at the Red Sea, and I want you to smite this rock. And when you smite this rock, water's going to come gushing out of this rock. It's going to supply the people and their beasts with water. Now, how big a rock was it? I have no idea. It doesn't really matter. God could have brought it out of a rock like that, or he could have brought it out of a rock big as this sanctuary. It doesn't matter. But when you read Psalms 78 and Psalms 103, the language runs like this. It says, the waters gushed out and became like rivers in the valleys. And the streams overflowed abundantly. Now, a lot of water came out to, to give uh, satisfaction for a million plus people. It had to. And it ran like rivers. I mean, just water came out of that rock miraculously. And once again, God took care of them. Once again, God answered the question of David in Psalm 78. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? Can he? Yes, he can. He did then, he can now. Amen. He did then, he can now. We come to Numbers chapter 20. 40 years down the road. 40 years down the road. And there's no water. <laughs> and of course we know they murmured again. They made sure they kept their reputation up. They murmured again. And the Lord told Moses, he says, I want you to speak to the rock. And it says, uh, speak to the rock, and it shall bring forth water unto the people and their beast. Now Moses about had it up here with the people, and he's very angry. And he says, must we fetch water out of this rock for ye rebels? They were rebels, but they were God's rebels. They weren't Moses' rebels. Moses is out of place. He shouldn't have said that. And, but you know, here, here shows a great display of God's mercy and grace, even though he shouldn't have said it when he, he smote the rock instead of speaking to the rock like the Lord told him to do. But God still brought forth water out of the rock. God still blessed the people despite Moses' disobedience. That God charged Moses and Aaron with this. He says, You failed to sanctify me before the people, and therefore you shall not enter into the land of Canaan. And I remember reading that, and I'm thinking, poor Moses. You know, he deserves better, it seems like to me. I mean, look what he had to deal with. Look who he had to deal with. They were thorns in his side. They were stubborn. They were stiff-necked. They were rebellious. They were unthankful, unappreciative. But the Lord didn't let him off the hook. And Moses came to understand that, I think. But here's the rock that water came out of. Now, here's what Moses said about this in Deuteronomy 32.4. He says, he is the rock, spelled with a capital R. He is the rock, his work is perfect. A God of truth without iniquity, just and right is he. Moses said, God is just, God is right. Moses uh, made a request to enter in the land of Canaan, and God reminded him not to say any more about it. He was not going to enter in. He did bless him to go on top of Mount Pisgah and take a look, and he saw the land of Canaan, but never entered in until the mountain of transfiguration. He is the rock. His work is perfect, whether you're understanding or not. We're talking about the perfect rock. Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1 says, A king shall reign in righteous prince shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in a weary land. I'm telling you, this is a great rock. This is a perfect rock. 
in this weary land in which we live. Don't you, aren't you happy and thankful tonight that you can sit in the shadow of this great rock in this weary land and it shields you from the heat and the, you know, and all the, the afflictions of this life here? When you go to Deuteronomy, keep reading chapter 32, he'll compare, Moses compare Israel's rock with the enemy's rock, and their rock spelled with a little r. But his, Israel's rocks always spell with a capital R. Over here in the New Testament, Brother Mark already made mention, when Christ ended the Sermon on the Mount, he gave an example of the foolish man and the wise man. And the wise man built his house on what? Built it on a rock. When the wind blew and the rain came, stood firm because it was a bedrock. That's what the word means. That means a bedrock, a rock suitable to build on as a foundation. Except the Lord built the house and labor in vain that built it, you see. So I'm telling you, we have a great rock in the Lord Jesus Christ. They ate of that spiritual meat and drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, when Christ was crucified, Christ was placed into a tomb that was hewn out of a rock. Joseph Arimathea, he put, uh, he hid his sepulcher there. Christ was placed into it again, in, in this rock. And then the rock was placed inside the rock. And then a great rock was rolled to the entrance of it. And this rock that was rolled to the entrance of it was so large and so big when Mary and them decided to go to it on the first day of the week, they asked this question. They said, who shall roll the rock away for us? They didn't feel like they had the power and the strength to roll that rock away. But you know what they did? They went on anyway. Have you ever been there? When uh, you may have hesitated to do something because you didn't feel like you had the power to do it, you'd have the strength to do it, and you asked yourself the question, who's going to roll away the rock? Well, they just decided somehow or another that rock get rolled away. When they got there, guess what? The angel rolled the rock away. The rock wasn't there anymore. It's like when the priests put their feet in the water to cross Jordan's River. The water didn't divide to put the feet in the water. But when they put their feet in the water, the water divided. And then they could cross over Jordan's River into the land of Canaan. Sometimes you have to get your feet wet. Sometimes you have to put your toes in the water if you expect anything to take place. Sometimes you just have to trust God that somehow, way, that rock's going to be taken away. And when they get there, the rock was rolled away from the entrance of the rock, and the rock was no longer there. Amen. The rock had come out of there. That rock rolled against the entrance of the cave. didn't have to be rolled away for him to get out. He was already out. When that rock was rolled away, they could look in and see an empty tomb, couldn't they? <laughs> they could see an empty tomb. When Jesus told the disciples to roll back the rock at the grave of Lazarus, he was still in there. You could see death and you could smell death. But when they rolled the rock away from the sepulchre of the Lord Jesus Christ, there was no death to see and no death to smell. The Lord Jesus Christ had conquered death come out of there on his own will, his own power. He came out very orderly. Napkin on one end, grave clothes on the other. I was taught growing up to make my bed. I'm telling you, children today have missed that lesson. I was taught to make my bed, and I make it. When I leave tomorrow, Sister B's, uh, where I've been staying, that better be made, Lord willing. And I did find I have a little trouble here in recent times when people got in the habit of putting a dozen pillows on the bed. 
I, mean, I never I hadn't figured that one out yet. I don't need but one. Anyway, there's a dozen pillows put on the bed, and how in the world am I going to remember how to put all them pillows back on the bed in the right order while well, I just take my iPhone and take a picture of them? I take a picture, and then the next day when I make the bed, I look at my phone, and I put every pillow right back in the same place it was. See, everybody thought I was so smart to be able to do all that, but the iPhone enabled me to do it. <laughs> Jesus came out of there and left everything in place, very orderly, Right? Can God first the table in the wilderness? He said, I not have you ignorant, brother, concerning our fathers, which were under the cloud, went through the sea, baptized unto Moses in the cloud, in the sea, ate that same spiritual meat, and drank that same spiritual rock, which followed them. That rock was Christ. It was spiritual. In fact, that God is, is a spirit. And he provided for them for 40 years to travel in that wilderness where there was no supply of food or water, and God miraculously did that. And he can miraculously do the same for us in the present day in which we live.